Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is Stephanie Brokart, uh, a consultant at Megara Sanctions and Export Controls Compliance in Amsterdam, um, but also a, a longtime experienced compliance person with experience both in financial institutions and in uh, export controls um, for products. So Stephanie, welcome. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, no, my pleasure. So today we're going to talk, we're going to do a deep dive uh, into the, the role of financial institutions in sanctions and export controls compliance. And I think we're going to start with sanctions compliance because that is traditionally what people think about with financial institutions and compliance. And then I think we'll probably turn to a discussion of where this is headed in light of the the increasing use of export controls is kind of a sanctions tool. So why don't we start first things first, um, talking about the role of banks in sanctions compliance, and and you should come at it, uh, you know, however you like. But I would, you know, it would be helpful for us to hear about the role of banks in sanctions compliance from the EU side, also with an eye towards U.S. compliance as well, because I know that non-U.S. financial institutions have both of those things in mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think, interestingly, um, I think you can really cut it up um, having like pre-Russia, uh, Ukraine invasion type of uh, time period and after that, because I think generally when we look at the time before the invasion, uh, sanctions in banks was often a lot of like focused on screening really. Uh, so list-based sanctions, um, and of course, there has been some focus on the full embargoes from the U.S. side uh, of things. Um, generally, those were restricted for all kinds of reasons that we might be talking about later uh, from the EU side of things as well. Um, and, and so that was really the cutoff because, I mean, those fully embargoed countries were mostly just the type of countries that they wouldn't venture into. Uh, so you end up being just focused, focused on screening type of things. Um, but if we look at everything that after it happens after the invasion of Ukraine, you see like there's a really big focus on trade restrictions. And you also see like a major step up, of course, from the EU side, because uh, I've been doing sanctions now for about six years, seven years, um, primarily. And then the thing is that it has always been focused on U.S. sanctions, to be honest, even being at a non-U.S. bank. So you focus on those embargoes, you focus on implementing um, the, the lists in your screening systems. And that's basically, I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that, obviously, but uh, basically that's what it boils down to, right? And now you see like the, the EU is stepping it up. Uh, we see all kinds of um, initiatives on the enforcement side of things. You see like we are already like discussing the 11th package from the EU coming out now. And uh, there's a lot more focus also from the regulatory point of view. So when you see that there was a big chunk going on in the AML uh, side, so for uh, non-US banks, uh, there has been a lot of focus on AML over the last couple of years and maybe sanctions has taken a little bit of a backseat. Um, but now you see like all the focus is really on sanctions and um, more and more into export controls also. So that's a really interesting development. And I think also where you see the, the issue is that um, because sanctions has taken a backside a bit, there's not been a lot of focus on uh, upgrading the knowledge and experience within banks on the sanctions and really the understanding like the vast uh, complexities around sanctions. If you just have a policy where you implement screening and you basically don't do business in any of the fully embargoed countries and you have to a little bit of a leftover on the sectoral side of things. So I think that that's an, an interesting development. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. So it sounds like pre-invasion from a financial institution perspective, the focus was often on U.S. sanctions. So it would be, you know, people who were put on lists, um, which corresponds, I think, with EU sanctions compliance because EU sanctions you know, for the EU countries and for the UK are almost entirely list-based, or at least were until the Russia until the Russia sanctions program. So essentially, sanctions compliance focused on lists, and then the US has some embargoes as well, so focused on lists and maybe certain countries, like 
like say Iran, like say, um, you know, uh, Cuba maybe, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of a hot button in the EU, but also Syria. So, so focused on countries, a few handful of countries, but mostly list-based compliance and it's all sanctions. There's not really a lot of export control. Is that fair kind of pre-Russia? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, of course, there's a lot of, I mean, other countries that are still subject to some type of sanctions, uh, sanctions, right? Also from the UN perspective, um, among others. So there is some focus, of course, on those type of restrictions, but, um, primarily it's list based indeed. And it's not so difficult. Of course, there are some hurdles here and there on implementing, uh, those list based sanctions. So with 50% rule and all those kind of things, but generally it, it boils down to that. Yeah. And what about, say, um, you know, some of the sanctions in, in the Iran program from the U.S. side, and I know now from the Russia side, involve things like SWIFT bans. So, you know, the SWIFT system, uh, financial system for uh, communicating between various financial institutions. Can you talk a little bit about how that would have played a role in compliance pre-Russia, and then we'll talk about post-Russia? Yeah, so in a sense, it, it isn't that, um, I mean, of course, for Iran, it was an issue. I think Iran is a little bit of an ex exemption in a sense that a lot of European uh, companies had business in Iran, right? Uh, and then we had the JCPOA happening and then uh, some European uh, companies ventured back into uh, Iran. And then the U.S. came up with this super aggressive secondary sanctions where they even had the, the clauses of having sanctions on foreign financial institutions that would facilitate significant transactions with um, with Iran, especially in the metal sector, oil and gas, right? So the, the kind of incentive of still doing and continuing business with Iran, even during or after the JCPOA, because I mean, the EU was still in the JCPOA, um, was basically really cut off by this aggressive use of secondary sanction by the US. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, there's this interesting discussion about how the overuse of sanctions right by the US is really um yeah do, uh, like taking away the the um the might of the dollar right as a reserve currency as a trade uh, currency uh, but still i mean we are nowhere there that uh, any globally operating um, or a bank can afford to be cut off from US dollar funding or US uh, dollar transactions processing. So in that sense, uh, it, it remains just a tricky thing, um, even though the, the, the EU updated its uh, EU blocking regulations, it was not enough to, to basically uh, counter that threat of secondary sanctions. So that's why in the end of the day, uh, non-US banks couldn't do anything else but to just continue their policy on basically not doing anything with Iran. Um, so so that's basically where you end up in that uh, situation where you just continue with a, a full ban on doing anything uh, from the Iran or the end, any of the other embargoed countries. Well, that's a, that's a really great point. And it sounds like Iran kind of is a good case study for this because it's one where the US had what you're very correctly calling a super aggressive um, secondary sanctions policy, a super aggressive sanctions policy in general, com particularly compared to the EU and the UK, which really have not traditionally done anything like the US sanctions program in, in Iran. Was the, is it fair to say that the US dollar policy was essentially driving the whole compliance program, or did you have different procedures in your observation whenever someone was using dollars as opposed to using euros or using pounds or using RMB like how did that work was there like one policy for dollars and one policy for everything else or was just the dollar policy used for everything because the dollar the the, the risks were that if you didn't use that po one policy for everything you might have a bad transaction involving dollars and get into some serious trouble yeah, of course, uh, I generally, I think banks do have some small carve outs uh, with respect to those countries for non-US den uh, denominated um, 
transactions because of course you're you're dealing with from a secondary sanctions perspective with this significant transaction uh, type of requirement in order to be um, put on like the blacklist from a secondary sanction point of view. So yeah, anything, uh, there were some small carve outs uh, here and there uh, where yeah, non-US banks just still process some stuff related to those countries within the boundaries of all applicable laws and regulations with a very, very strong requirement of excluding any non uh, or any dollar or US involvement, right? US uh, or persons, US dollars, basically. So, um, but I mean, it also happens in practice, for example, that even though you have the situation where you are uh, processing non-dollar uh, transactions, that because of the correspondent networking, where you route the transactions to the end destination, that there's still a, U a US bank involved um, in a non-dollar uh, payment. So that still puts you at risk of then causing that uh, sanction violation, right? So that's that's just the really tricky part that's difficult to avoid. Right, and, and why I think, you know, the default rule for a lot of the financial institutions outside the US that I've seen is still, we do US sanctions compliance for everything because we just can never tell when there's gonna be enough of a US connection. I mean, is that fair to say with your experience? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, then you get also back into the discussion or you can have a lengthy discussion about what is an indirect nexus and the due diligence requirements for a bank. Uh, what does it exactly entail, right? Because if we look at the past more list-based sanctions, it's pretty straightforward at the end of the day because, I mean, you have a, a payment, you process it, a remittance, right? And it goes via the SWIFT system. So basically what you have is like a SWIFT message which contains the originating information with the address of and the name. You have the beneficiary, you have all the banks that are involved in the transaction uh, and, and then there is some remittance information. That is all, and that is screened against lists. And if there's anything uh, that hit, hits against any relevant sanctions list, uh, it uh, triggers an alert and it is investigated, right? So that is much easier in a sense than- well, Let me stop, let me stop you there. No, I just wanted to stop you there because yeah. I, I think you were gonna go on to talk about how it gets harder, but just before you do, um, mm -hmm. with the list-based sanctions. So we're talk, probably talking about a huge amount of volume coming through the bank. And so, you know, was there, were there issues with respect to, you get so many hits a day because, you know, if you set your screening too tight, you'll miss actual matches because yeah. there'll be a misspelling. So you're going to set it looser so that you'll catch more, you know, it'll be fuzzy. So you'll catch more things yeah. that aren't hits. I mean, just, can you just describe kind of some of the challenges with separating the true hits from the false hits given the volume of transactions that would pass through a financial institution in any given day? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly tricky, of course, uh, you can imagine. We also know that uh, the amount of, of entities or parties that are being added to the sanctions list over the past couple of years has like skyrocketed, right? So indeed, the, the, uh, the amount of alerts is picking up. And so I think most banks these days have these kind of teams that are basically full-time in the business of writing algorithms, uh, doing uh, assessments on uh, whitelisting, uh, tweaking the fuzzy logic that they apply. If it is too high, too low, they run test cases on that. Uh, and, and they check, try to check with governments or regulators because that's a tricky part of it, of course. Um, is your regulator gonna be happy by with what you are gonna then, how you calibrate your uh, machines, right? Because if you look at at uh, the information on sanctions list, it's not often always, you cannot always uh, declassify the alerts because there's often lack of information. So what are you gonna do with those type of alerts that you cannot process? Then you basically have to reject, but also causes all kinds of other issues. So that remains just a really tricky uh, element of it. And of course, I mean, the 50% yeah, makes this extremely difficult. <laughs> exactly. I mean, because that's the thing about the U.S. sanction side, and now it's, you know, spread over to the EU and the U.K. You, you, you can't count on the list, which does make it 
a lot harder, especially given the sort of volume. You know, one more question on these the screening. I mean, how about using AI? Has AI helped, or does it is it just too big a job, and you just need a, a human involved? I think that is picking up more and more. This, I mean, I, I, I think AI must be the solution to this because, I mean, from the EU perspective, we also uh, have to deal with the control element, right, on top of the 50% ownership uh, perspective. So that makes it even more difficult. And we, of course, at banks, you do have uh, strict uh, requirements for uh, identifying ownership and control for your own clients, but they're, you're also expect to catch outgoing transactions, right? Uh, or ingoing as in any case, the client of your client. So the only reason to catch those uh, is basically you make use of these type, what you call enhancement lists, right? That are being, there's parties in the market who basically constantly pull data out of global uh, enterprise data management systems that are issued by governments to try to identify the parties that might be affected by 50% rules or ownership and control. So um, yeah, that, that's the only way to, yeah, to manage this as a bank. You rely on these kind of list providers that provide you these kind of enhancement lists. And then there's even, I mean, that's the great. Dutch government. And, okay. Uh, yeah, so the Dutch government, for example, even wants to lower the 50% threshold to 25%. Uh, so imagine the additional workload that would come out of right. that. Right, and I cut you off before, but I mean, this is just list-based. So we've now just been talking about the challenges where you, you know, there is someone on a list and the role of the financial institution is just to try and catch that person, you know, and through screening. Um, or potentially having to catch that person or company through the, the use of the 50% rule. And it's very challenging, but these are just probably the least challenging sorts of sanctions to comply with. I, I cut you off before, and I think you were going to talk about, okay, so now we have all sorts of other types of considerations that we have to look at beyond lists in the, in the EU. Now, we've had a little of that in the States because of the embargoes and other types of programs that we've had for a number of years. But post-Russia, it looks like the EU is moving towards lots of other things about the transactions that the banks are supposed to look for. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, it is still a bit, I mean, it's the kind of thing that, we have these trade sanctions in place, right, all of a sudden, and they are very creative. They are real. We are trying to target really the ones that we want to target and we want to try to leave alone those that are not to blame for the entire invasion, right? So um, the idea of regulators is, I mean, they thought long and hard about this, but it makes it so complicated, especially for banks, because of the volumes that we are talking about, that Almost, if you think about it, it takes so much time for a bank to really dig into the requirements for these kind of transactions that they're not equipped for it, I think, in a sense. I think that is fair to say because, I mean, you, the rules are extremely complex. And when you look at international transactions, you can also not just say as a bank, uh, I'm only going to see uh, what sanctions apply in my own jurisdictions. Because, for example, if you are dealing with a transaction that involves a UK uh, bank, for example, or a UK client, you also have to look at the UK regulations. Because, for example, if you are going to send a payment that originates from a bank that is sanctioned on the UK law, but not on the EU law, your US UK correspondent is not going to be happy with you if you're going to send payments that originate from a sanctioned bank, even though it's not sanctioned in your jurisdiction. So you have to like understand the magnitude of all these different sanctions regulations um, uh, in all these different jurisdictions and the value the volume is massive right because especially in, in europe you have to just especially in the beginning of uh the war there was just a lot of business with russia simply there were a lot of in the netherlands for example another clients who did uh who had dealings for business with russia so the volumes were high and complexity was high and we you kept getting all these different packages and you're still required to as a bank expected you to also assess trade transactions or restrictions but the only information you have is payments right like as we just discussed you have yeah. addresses uh, beneficiary payment reference you don't have anything else basically to assess so they have to request that from the client yeah, or I, not or what is enough 
Right. I mean, uh, and 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 just to kind of make this more concrete. So, you know, someone in the Netherlands has a transaction involving Russia that involves, say, you know, one of the items where the harmonized tariff code now imposes a licensing requirement due to one of the packages of sanctions. It didn't previously, mm-hmm. it does now. The banks, to, to comply with sanctions, the bank is going to not only have to figure out, well, who are the parties involved? What what jurisdictions do they come from, right? So you, your example yeah. was you've got a UK person and a UK bank involved. So now you've got mm-hmm. UK, let's say it's dollars, but a UK you know, bank involved as well. So you've got UK, US, EU sanctions. And then you've got to figure out with respect to the underlying transaction, are we financing a transaction that involves trade with Russia that is allowed or not allowed? Because some products require licenses, other products don't. So there's no restriction on that sort of trade with Russia. And now the bank has to figure out, you know, given the multiple jurisdictions, how does the law apply to this underlying transaction and can we finance? I mean, are, are banks equipped to do that, I guess, is, and, and, and if not, like, what are they doing to catch up? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, right? I mean, can you catch up? It's just, I mean, you have to train people. And these are the kind of, I mean, when you are on the corporate side, you have the comfort in a sense that you only have a couple of dealings. So you can focus on your own business and you just hire a good lawyer who's going to help you assess uh, the applicable laws, regulations. And But for the bank, I mean, you keep getting loads and loads of transactions and you, you have to deal with with. Uh, people who are not very experienced because, I mean, you cannot use your most senior people because they are too busy with basically running the sanctions program for the entire bank. So you're going to have like KYC analysts assessing these kind of transactions. So that's how you quite quickly end up with overcompliance and de-risking because it becomes too tricky. Yeah, and it it goes beyond just Russia, right? I mean, so, you know, for very good policy reasons, countries around the world now have started to impose restrictions on products that they believe to be the the product of forced labor. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a, you know, pretty wide reaching law in the US that deals with imports. I know that Europe and the UK have their own similar forced labor laws. Banks have to screen now for those sorts of issues as well. I mean, again, that's another round of training, right? I mean, that probably I'm assuming, you know, unless you tell me different that inside the banks, there's just not a lot of compliance mechanisms for that. No, exactly. Because I mean, you're all scrambling to just get the things that you need to do already to to get that done. I mean, also, for example, think about reporting. There's a lot of uh, resources that go into reporting obligations from a sanctions perspective. It takes a lot of time. So those are the kind of things. I mean, it just adds up and, and you have to just think about your next step. What is coming at us? This import stuff is new again, of course. But yeah, it's coming. And yeah, you just hope to be prepared as a bank and to do some risk assessment and see why your risks lie. But it, it remains tricky, yeah, for sure. So so given this complexity, I mean, what I often say to, to clients who are not in financial institutions and who are upset by financial institutions that they believe have stopped a safe transaction is no is always the safest answer for a bank, right? Because if the transaction doesn't happen, then you can't violate sanctions. If you reject it, you know, or sometimes even block it, there's there's really no bad consequence that can happen to the bank unless they get sued, but they'll if there as long as there's a arguable basis under sanctions or export controls, as long as it's the slightest bit complicated, even if they get it wrong when they say no, there's no consequences. Whereas if they say yes and they turn out to be wrong, they could be you know, have caused a sanctions violation or or be involved in a sanctions violation or an export controls violation now in some other way. I mean, and so as a result, I mean, I think you just mentioned the word overcompliance. I mean, my impression from the outside is that banks respond to these very sensible incentives by saying no in a lot more cases than where they actually know that the correct answer is no. Is that your impression? Yes. And I think that boils down to the fact that uh, two things, I think. One of them is, uh, as we said in the beginning, uh, sanctions has not been a big priority. So the 
there's there's always a couple of really good people within the bank who have a strong background in sanctions, but not it's not big those kind of departments as you compare it to AML because AML has a lot of people that are really like uh, real experts, uh, big time experts on the AML side, but less so on the sanctions side. And on the other hand, uh, because uh, sanctions is naturally being uh, well sits within the AML department. Uh, which is a separate discussion that you could have. Uh, it sits within the AML uh, framework. And from an AML perspective, the big, big question is always also from a regulatory point of view, um, what is enough due diligence? How much do I need to know about a transaction, about a client for it to be sufficient for the regulator to be happy with me? Because it's not always about uh Violations happen, right? But uh, they get you because your uh, due diligence was not sufficient. And if the client cannot provide enough information or you don't have the knowledge in-house to really like uh, understand this super complex uh, laws and regulations. And often, as you also know, there's a lot of interpretation issues, uh, especially also on the humanitarian. There's a lot of issues that are just not clear or complex of or connected to expert controls where there's also limited uh, knowledge on uh, within the banking um, world basically then i think you quickly end up with a discussion like yeah we don't understand we don't really know what the requirements are so yeah let's be on the safe side and not Never mind, we're not going to do it. At the end of the day, you also spend a lot of resources. It's expensive, these type of enhanced due diligence requirements that come from the AML side of things. So you'll have to do a continuous review and you're, uh, you're going to apply enhanced monitoring on the transaction monitoring side. So it just costs a bank loads of money um, to process these type of transactions. And I mean, they could maybe increase the cost of these kind of transactions, but that is always a little bit of a tricky discussion as well. Are you going to increase the cost for uh, clients also from the AML side, of course, for clients that are higher risk that as a bank cost you more uh, to maintain simply because they operate in a, in a high risk sector? It would be nice, uh, you raised this point, it would be nice if um, the regulators, so OFAC, the Dutch regulators, the UK regulators, and even you know, the EU sanctions authority would tell us how much diligence is enough, right? I mean that that would kind of end the problem if there was a if there was a some sort of mandate that said if you do this much due diligence, if you make a mistake, you know, in good faith, if you make a mistake, it's not going to be you're, we're not going to hold it against you. I mean, OFAC doesn't do that. I, any discussion of doing that in the the EU? No, not as far as I, I know. I and mean, so, I mean, no, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's clearly a really big concern indeed. Uh, I, I wish there would have been more clear guidelines in that sense. And, and also maybe it's not always clear also what can be asked, but I think it just requires a lot more cooperation uh, between these kind of parties to really get it done. I mean, for example, within the bank, uh, there's also uh, issues, for example, on the payment side. And so imagine you you uh, jump through a million hoops and you decide as a bank that we do want to do this transaction with an embargoed countries, then maybe you're going to end up with a transaction that involves Hawala banking is somewhere down the chain, right? Because at the end of the day, if you want to get uh, some funds in and out of an embargoed country, Syria, for example, is a good example with the, the earthquake going on. A lot of those kind of funds right. eventually went through Hawala. Uh, then at that point, the bank would say, but hold on, under Dutch laws and regulations, Hawala is uh, illegal. So even though it is not illegal in Syria, it's illegal in Dutch law. So probably we shouldn't do that. And also now that the NGO, the client who wants to do this kind of stuff now told us that they are in the business of Hawala banking or they use Hawala banking. Can we still keep this client as a client? Or do we need to offboard over that? So there's this kind of relationship where you on the one hand ask lots and lots of detailed information from the client, which the client is then hesitant to provide to you. And by the end, uh, you have to assess that kind of information as a bank and it turns out that it is scary stuff from the bank's point of view, then what are you going to do, right? Right, right. And just for our listeners who, who are not familiar with Hawala banking, Hawala banking is a form of banking where essentially there's no financial transaction electronically. 
right? And so right. there's not money crossing international borders, so it it's mm-hmm. it doesn't leave a trace. So it's a lot harder to trace from a compliance perspective. Anything else listeners should know about Hawala banking? No, other than it is a very common practice in the Middle East and Africa, uh, yes. generally also the countries where, yeah, that are under embargo. So that makes it difficult. And a lot of NGOs, uh, NGOs rely on this kind of uh, system uh, to, to get funds in and out. Right. And, th- and that traces back to, I think, a bigger problem that uh, I th- we've kind of been hinting around. But, but basically, when you have this overcompliance, where essentially, if you're anywhere near a sanctioned country, a sanctioned party, um, banks often will say no, even though the correct answer is yes, because they either are overcautious or they don't have the resources to figure out whether the answer is yes, because it's complicated. In some instances, I think that policymakers like that outcome, right? If we're trying to sanction a country, we'd rather have you say no 10 times when the correct answer is yes, than yes one time when the correct answer is no. But there is, at least from the US side, and I know from the the EU side as well, this, this belief that these sanctions programs have humanitarian carve-outs and the rationale being we're sanctioning the government or we're sanctioning the practices, but we're not trying to hurt, let's say, the Russian people or the Iranian people or the people in the country. And so food and medicine are usually off limits from sanctions policy. But if you can't pay for the food and medicine because the banks won't work, that doesn't do a lot of good. Can you talk a little bit about how successful these humanitarian carve-outs have been? Yeah, I mean, difficult to say for me as a whole, but I think there's there's a lot of just issues with it in general, in a sense that, yeah, we didn't really get to it. But um, like we were just saying before, once you decide that you do want to process it as a bank, you did your due diligence, you feel comfortable and you feel like you're doing a good thing uh, and you're going to process this transaction, then you're going to uh, go over to your uh, payment uh, processing department and you ask them, can you route this money to Syria for me? Then the, the chances are really high that your payment processing department is going to say, well, actually, no, I can't because there's basically no payment corridors for me. And that is also uh, the result of, um, because of AML regulation, it has become really, really uh, costly for banks to maintain a large correspondent network. So if you, for example, 10 years ago, did have general routes into uh, Syria, for example, now you have to, because how correspondent bank uh, banking works is you have a, um, yourself, you have a correspondent bank, for example, in France, and the the French correspondent bank has a connection in Spain, and the Spanish uh, bank has a connection to Syria. So you have to go through four banks in order to get the money into Syria. So, but at that point, because those uh, connections have slimmed down so much, because it's too expensive, there's too many AML requirements, um, the the chances that there's going to be more and more uh, uh, intermediary banks into those kind of transactions is higher and higher. So the the chances that your payment gets stuck at some point in that payment chain is also much higher. So getting the money there, even though you want to as a bank yourself, is not going to be easy. And you also risk the chances that even though you ask them and the bank says, no, you're correspondent, that a week later, you're going to uh, get a question from the correspondent banking relationship manager. What are you actually doing in those countries? We don't like that. Are we going to like increase your risk profile as a correspondent bank? Are we going to assess additional due diligence on you? So those, it's, it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, it seems like. Well, and I, I mean, it's a really good point, and I hadn't really thought about the the layers of compliance resources that are expended on on this. I mean, even if you can get to a yes on a humanitarian transaction, it sounds like the financial corridors are so complicated that you've got multiple banks involved quite often, and every single one of those banks has to do compliance. To add one more layer to this, I mean at least in the US, and I'm assuming in the EU and the UK as well, it's not like you can just say this involves food and medicine, so it's automatically good. The US 
general licenses or specific licenses, mm -hmm. if, the, if that's what's in play, are very complicated to comply with. They have payment requirements. There have to be certain parties involved and certain parties not involved. And so every single one of those financial institutions in that corridor, even to get to yes, has to say, has to say, has to go through that analysis for every single humanitarian transaction to be confident that it actually is compliant with these exceptions. Because it's not, they're not simple to apply. I mean, you no. know, if it's food or medicine, you have a chance that it's possible, but you don't know that it fits until you go through a pretty detailed analysis. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, that, that is a big issue. And it often contains a lot of uh, export control elements as well, right? Uh, when you talk about uh, medical, yeah. for example, uh, how are you going to assess that? Plus, you have to then get loads of information. Plus, it's not always clear, right? What is the end user? Who's the end user? What, what does the money exactly end up? What is going to be paid for? I'm not going to get an invoice for uh, materials that are needed to build a school in, in the kind of countries that, that you need. I mean, it's not, it doesn't work like that, the way we process uh, our uh, administration in that sense um, uh, into such uh, detail, right? So it is then you also have this cultural aspect to it that makes it just really difficult. So knowledge gap uh, on all sides. So from from a regulatory or regulations point of view and the amount of information that you need to properly assess if you can indeed apply or if this general license, for example, is applicable. Right, so so that's really a, a tricky point. Plus, then you haven't even talked about the potential involvement of sanctioned parties, right? If it involves the government, for example, right. a lot of governments right. are sanctioned, which brings us to, right. of course, and the, there might be a general yeah, license, license. That, right? Yeah, that brings us no, to the, the yeah the UN regulation uh, that was issued uh, at the end of last year, which provides a carve out for the involvement of sanctioned parties in um, humanitarian transactions, but it still remains uh, a tricky issue. I mean, all the other elements that we just discussed remains. Right. Yeah, and the U.S. often includes in the carve outs some involvement of otherwise sanctioned parties. Like for example, in Iran, there are carve outs that banks that are involved in humanitarian transactions can process those transactions, but those same banks can't be involved in other transactions and same way with you know governmental actors. But it's complicated and it yeah. isn't always true. So you have to go through with each one. So what I mean and and you know I, I think it sounds like your your experience is similar to mine on this where we're seeing lots of humanitarian transactions get rejected or blocked that uh, that really you know many of them should be going through their legitimate transactions that the sanctions authorities say they want to go through but it's not happening I mean, how do we fix that is is having government involvement in this corridor a, a, a potential solution i think so i mean i think it is really the only solution i think you want a much more uh, active participation of governments. I think you want to really uh, act like actively involved to such a point that you're going to create official payment corridors, that you're going to have people involved uh, within the bank who see obstacles. Uh, you have them working together with governments, with the EU, with working groups. Um, and even while you're at it, maybe you can even just create a uh, provision in, in laws and regulations that if uh, certain transactions meet certain criteria that they are obliged to actually process these kind of transactions unless they see any specific red flags or whatever what have you uh, but that you really like uh, improve transparency you improve the cooperation between the government and and the banks and the NGOs of course that are involved and you you create like uh, payment corridors I think that's the only way to solve this issue Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to me like until you have governments blessing particular transactions, mm -hmm. there's always risk involved and banks are going to respond to that risk by saying no, because there's just no upside, as you point out. I mean, they can yeah. be more expensive than they're worth and then they can also lower your your risk profile with respect to some of the regulators or some of the, you know, the the monitor institutions that are watching for bank risk. So so it, it seems like a no-win proposition until you get governments involved to say, we're going to take the enforcement risk out of this. Like, we, we will bless the transactions under 
these circumstances yeah. and th those transactions will go. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, talking about specific licenses, that is actually, of course, an approval from the government in a sense, right? You could consider yep. that an approval from the government. Yep. But still, I think there's loads of banks who would still say, like, even though you have a specific license, we're not really sure about the interpretation or the scoping of it. So, nah, we're going to exclude it. We're not going to accept that as a uh, goal for uh, for transactions into the embargoed country. So, you, you're going to come up, you have to come up with something stronger than that, I, I'm afraid. Yeah. I, I, I guess the one other thing I wanted to talk about in this area of overcompliance was the perception. I, I think there's a misperception, and you, you know, you, you may you may feel otherwise, but my my view from the state side is there's this misperception overseas with a lot of the big banks that every mistake with OFAC can get you penalized, like BNP Paribas got penalized, where you billion dollar fines are the norm. And I always feel like that's a misperception because those cases involved willful conduct, right? I mean, people were stripping the names of sanctioned mm -hmm. countries. They, this was not like a bunch of compliance people struggling with a general license trying to get yeah. it right. This was people who said, we're going to keep doing this business, but we're going to alter records to make sure that people can't tell what we're doing. Like that will get you in a lot of trouble. But if you make an innocent mistake, like the fines often are are much lower than that if they're fines at all. I mean, 95 to 98% of violations are resolved with a no action or a warning letter. So like OFAC sees lots of violations that are innocent that, you know, they tell you to go back and do better. And if you keep doing it, you might get into trouble, but it's not like one miss is going to cost the bank billions of dollars. But I, I see the perception overseas is like, we can't do anything wrong because OFAC mm. will punish the bank billions of dollars. And so, you know, if we let this, you know, seeming humanitarian transaction go through, OFAC's going to go after us. I mean, the truth is I, there really aren't any enforcement actions for any serious amount of money that involve claimed humanitarian transactions unless you've got bad actors you know, behind those transactions that are trying to use these exceptions to do bad things, but those aren't on the banks. Those are generally on the bad actors. I mean, is, the, is it your perception that everybody hears OFAC overseas and thinks billions of dollars in penalties if we get anything wrong? Because that's the perception that I have from over here. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I, I couldn't agree more. And it is something that has uh, frustrated me a bit for a long time. And it's something that I try to also tell people Oftentimes, like, I mean, dive into those uh, enforcement cases and you will see that almost without, well, actually without uh, exception. And when you look at these big five, it's all stripping. It's all willful conduct. Uh, so it's all like official procedures and involvement of very senior management who actually just created these type of loopholes to to just and of course you you have to then admit that it was creative to come up with this export of financial uh, services the way they actually created the jurisdiction to find these banks but that's a different discussion i think um from yep. the way you manage yep. uh, this type of this type of risk Hundred percent uh, true, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of those cases when you dig down deep, I mean, there are memos to senior management that say, "Hey, this is a problem." And then there are, I mean, the, at least in the reports that come out, they'll say that senior management's response was to say, "These countries are too big. We need the revenue. We're going to keep yeah. doing business there." I mean, that is just so far removed from the ordinary compliance question that you're going to get as to be just irrelevant. But in my view, that is driving a lot of the compliance that's yeah. going on overseas. Definitely. And I mean, you see that um, starting in 2012, actually, with that big ING case all the way up into 2018, 2019, all the same stuff. Yep. Yep. No, I, I, I always forget that it really started in 2012 with ING and moved from there. So the Netherlands were at the center of all of this. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so, so you're probably seeing up close what the, the, the response was in terms of the message that was sent. So, so, so I think, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the way things are and the way things are changing with respect to, to Russia. I mean, are you seeing banks really change their compliance approach now that, you know, you can't just 
focus on screening, but you really got to go deeper? Are they adding to their due diligence departments? Are they adding to their compliance departments? I mean, how, how, what has been the response to this stuff getting even more complicated and, and more labor intensive? Yeah, I think is it, a, it is a bit mixed. I mean, when you look at EU regulations, I mean, you can also talk about, you go back to trade uh, restrictions. Is it really the responsibility of a bank to really dive into that? And is it their responsibility to not miss those type of transactions and to assess uh, compliance with trade regulations? I mean, of course, there is some, uh, I mean, the EU regulations, they contain a section where they say, well, you need to do appropriate due diligence, otherwise you can't be liable. But there's, there's no such a thing as a strict liability on their EU regulations. So it is also not super clear from a regulatory point of view, I would say, or from a legislative point of view, what the exact um, role is of a bank and how far they should go with this type of due diligence. Uh, so I think there's different interpretations uh, depending on the bank. So uh, some banks will go as far as digging really deep into and like stopping every single transaction related to Russia and going into a deep dive due diligence. Other banks would say, well, we take a more risk-based approach and we're just going to like uh, maybe enhance our sanction screening and only pick out certain high-risk cases that we have assessed as such and we're not going to do a full 100% due diligence. So I think we're going to just see uh, both from an enforcement perspective and a regulatory point of view what the interpretation is of the regulator of, of the bank's responsibility in this perspective. Uh, and also maybe we're going to see some fines uh, in the EU uh, for banks who, who didn't go deeper into these type of due diligence transactions. Same with, with export control, of course. If we look at export control, this has never really been on top of mind of banks. I mean, when I switched from the bank into the corporate side of things, I had barely even heard of expert controls, to be honest. I mean, it's just not big within a banking organization. So, but now you see that uh, FinCEN and BIS last year, um, uh, they published this uh, joint alert with respect to um, yeah, guidance for financial institutions on how to catch export control uh, uh, violations uh, within their screening systems and the, the Dutch government has also published a requirement for banks to start screening against the EU dual use list. Uh, so there's all kinds of initiatives and how do banks go about that? And also when you look at, for example, the, the, the FinCEN BIS uh, type of guidance is very different from screening uh, dual use against the dual use good, good list because to me, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to just implement an entire uh, Wassenaar list into a screening system and just hope that within the payment match, because that's the only way where you can find something expert control related is in the uh, remittance information that may lead you to some kind of link that you could investigate with respect to potential violations of uh, export controls. So yeah, I mean, then it makes more sense uh, the way BIS and uh, FinCEN uh, go about it. It's more like on the due diligence side. Are you going to see red flags with respect to end use? What are you seeing uh, in your transaction monitor, uh, for example? Because circumvention evasion is big at the moment, right? There's big, big focus on this uh, circumvention evasion. And the only reason I think banks can play a role in this is through uh, uh, customer due diligence and also transaction monitoring, because in the transaction monitoring side of things, you look at, uh, like traditionally from an anti-money laundering point of view, at uh, scenarios where you, for, exa see, uh, for example, see increases in certain uh, flows in and out of a certain country. And that can be useful in then investigating further where those flows are coming from, right? Where do they go? What are the underlying um, business activities that uh, increase this uh, uptick in um, business and fund uh, flows of funds as opposed to years ago, for example, with the typical countries like Kazakhstan, Turkey, right? So that's a more useful tool, I would think, than just to use. But to my perception, is also kind of an indication that Regulators are also not really sure how to really deal with this in the end of the day, I think. And then there is, of course, the discussion that the EU side of things, I mean, export control from an EU perspective is still a whole lot more simple than it is from the 
U.S. perspective, right? Because we don't have to deal with right. country lists of entity lists or, or license exceptions or that kind of stuff. No, I mean, the, the, having a financial institution deal with U.S. export controls is extraordinarily complex. I mean, that's yeah. it, it because and it also reaches, as you point out, beyond just Russia, right? Because U.S. export oh, controls yeah. apply under U.S. law. At least U.S. takes the position they apply that to any U.S. origin good for export, re-export, or transfer. So basically forever, yep. as long as that mm -hmm. good exists. And to have yep. banks get into that compliance process is going to be very difficult. Maybe you can do a red flags approach, but you're not mm -hmm. going to, I mean, if you ever want the financial system to move for business, if a bank is sitting there trying to figure out whether or not this product can go to this country on, and whether or not there might be a license exception applicable mm -hmm. if it, you know, if a license is required, I mean, you'd need basically a team of BIS people at every single financial institution in the yeah. world to be yeah. able to accomplish that. And it still would be very slow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, you can take, well, of course, the risk-based so, approach uh, still. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, for example, identify certain sectors uh, within your client base that are sensitive to export control violation and just ask them, hey, do you actually have export control uh, program in place? Those kind of questions, right, on the due diligence side that you could do. Yeah, and I think when I, when I talk about this with clients, it it's always comes back to, like, there's no right answer. So essentially, the right answer comes down to, at least from the U.S. side, if, if a regulator knocks on the door and says, this was a bad transaction, what did you do to try and, you know, prevent it because your financial institution was involved, you've got to be able to come back with something that's defensible. You've got to mm -hmm. look and actually, you know, in good faith, have tried to catch this. And if something got through, you'll be okay. Whereas if, you know, if you come back and say, well, you know, we just, we, no we just can't figure yeah. out U.S. export control, so we've decided to ignore them. Or, you know, we're just, we're just trying to get the transactions through. And, you know, if it turns out some of them are bad, we just, that just comes down to a cost of doing business, you'll be in trouble. I mean, you just have to have a defensible answer when they come knocking and it can't be like, we don't try or, yeah, we knew about this, but we did it anyway. It has to be something a lot better than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the end, that's what it all boils down to, right? You need a good story. Yep. Yep. So last word, um, what's the future going to look like in EU financial institution sanctions and export control compliance? <laughs> I think they'll have to just uh, significantly ramp up their sanctions uh, expertise uh, and then uh, we're going to see just more focus. I hope less over compliance because everything that you don't know is scary is what I tend to say. So, I mean, maybe when they start like building up their yeah. experience, I hope that they're also going to feel more comfortable about processing transactions that are actually allowed, that they focus on the actual real yeah, risk. I think that's really overlapping everything yeah, is scared I, approach i think that's really no no i sorry to interrupt i i think that's really ultimately where it has to go if you're going to really start balancing these sanctions and export controls with the need for humanitarian transactions because if you can't if it's just too hard as it is now to get to yes you're never going to get the sort of humanitarian activity that everyone says that they want not to be impeded by the by the sanctions and export controls. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Stephanie. It was really a pleasure. Um, and so thanks so much for sharing your insight into financial institutions. It's good having you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay sanctions free. Produced by HeartCast Media.